This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Welcome to A Complete History of Manchester United. I'm Wayne Barton, author and producer of several Manchester United books and films. I will be joined by Paddy Barclay, legendary journalist and football writer to take you on this journey through Old Trafford history. Um, If you're watching this video, please give it a like and subscribe. If you're joining the conversation in the comment section as well, that would be great. If you're listening to us on the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you are listening on. So a little of the journey to where we are at this point, because this series is going to begin in the 1946-1947 season which is Sir Matt Busby's first season in charge of Manchester United. Before Paddy comes in with the heavy work on, on Matt Busby and Jimmy Murphy, I thought I'd lay a few of the foundations that became before Busby's foundations because a lot of people, um, quite rightly, give Busby most of the credit for setting up the youth policy at United, but it is worth noting that it existed before then. Um, Manchester United Football Club is such a strong commercial entity in the 21st century that the football club aspect has been removed from the crest. Mm. Uh, one reason for that is brevity. The other is ease of use. Um, the other is that those final words are no longer necessary when most people around the world um, talk about United because they know exactly what you mean when, when you mention Manchester United. But the idea of associating United with any kind of commercial power or, or sort of global presence in the 1940s would have been alien. In fact, the idea of associating them with that at that time would have been laughable. It would be closer yeah. to the truth to say United were destitute, um, a situation exacerbated by the damage to the Old Trafford Stadium, which was caused during the war. as partly this issue which created the circumstances in which their greatest quality would be born. And the greatest quality for clarity in this conversation was the development of the famous youth system. Yeah. Now, as we said before, it is often just accepted it was a philosophy installed by Sir Matt Busby, and while he certainly de- deserves a generous um, share of the credit, it's worth journeying back in time to before he was hired as manager. Um, United did have a troubled financial history. In an interview with the Topical Times in February 1935, Louis Rocker, a man who wore many hats during his association with the club at this time, carried the title assistant manager and explained the drama. He said he's been with United now for 40 years. He's been living on a switchback railway. I've seen the club flat broke three times, hard put to raise half a crown. I've seen them win the cup, win the league, everything else that was going up and downs. I first joined the club when I was about eight years old. I used to sneak under the boards. One day I was caught, caught. I was promised to hide in. I said to the man who caught me, never mind the walloping. Please kind of watch your match. Um, Rocker's lifelong association with United was was born at that point. He also claimed to be the man who gave the club the name Manchester United. Um, Rocker's versions of events have been disputed, um, but his importance to the club uh, most certainly not. Uh, Rocker was joined at the club by someone equally passionate in the shape of Walter Crickmer. And speaking after the 48 FA Cup final, he spoke of Crickmer's importance of influence the pair being heavily influential in implementing the youth team idea at United. Yeah. 
one man behind the scenes at Old Trafford who has seen more club vicissitudes than is usually the lot of a single person is Walter Crickmer, United Secretary, Rocker said at the time. His most impressive work was probably when he started the Moojacks, the Manchester United Junior Athletic Association. It has been a masterpiece of an organisation and today we have five and recently six players who have graduated from the juniors. Um, I won't name them here, because there'll be a spoiler for, for later episodes. Um, but they're all identified with the ground staff shortly after leaving school. The Moojacks was Walter's idea and what rich dividends it is now paying. Yes, the Moojacks are a passport to higher things with United. We had no manager when this organisation was started. Walter Crickmer and Louis Rocker's dreams needed some good old cash behind them and in December 1931 the club had almost gone under um, for the more than well it wasn't just the first time and they needed local businessman James Gibson to come in and invest three two thousand pound at the behest of club secretary and then acting manager Walter Crickmer in December 31. United was saved once more United Kingdom, though, like the rest of the world, was in the early throes of the Depression, so Gibson's benevolence was even more extraordinary. The sum of money that he offered covered club debts, which included outstanding wages to players. Gibson promised further investment if needed on the proviso that he was given club control um, as chairman. Now, United were encouraged by how successful that policy to bring through young players had been. The Moojacks had concluded the 38-39 season scoring 223 goals and winning the Cholton Amateur League. The idea of pride in where you were from and a sense of togetherness and unity developed in a young band of brothers. Um, it helped the overall quality and also helped to forge a strong relationship with the supporters who were more inclined to be vocal and attached to their team if they knew the boys were local lads. Crickman and Rocker didn't want to lose the momentum of this during the war, so they went to extraordinary lengths to keep it. They knew local boys, Abraham, Clifford, and Frederick Goslin, in fact, rocking just by everyone in Manchester, but certainly them. Um, they asked if they could help in any way, and it was arranged and team would be named after them, the Goslins, and yeah. they would participate in the Manchester Amateur League in the war years. It was under this setup that the likes of Jack Crompton and Johnny Morris were discovered, or would go on to play for United with some distinction, as well as for England. Um, but um, Paddy, they obviously needed a man to steer the ship. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's it's absolutely true to point out that Manchester United believed in a youth policy before Matt Busby. But when Matt Busby came at the end, became manager at the end of the war, after he'd begun the war as uh, as centre, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, the captain of Liverpool, played three matches, uh, all three matches in the league before war broke out. And then, um, to cut a long story short, he became uh, a a sort of a, a, a physical training instructor. That was the official title based at Aldershot. And uh, but in actual fact, he he had been chosen by the FA secretary Stanley Rouse to become the captain and leader of a, an all-star team who would entertain the troops during the. During the war, he was, uh, you could say he was the football's answer to Vera Lynn. Uh, This great team, which included the likes of Tom Finney, Stanley Matthews, all-time England greats, and Matt, who um, was wartime captain of Scotland. But it was under the leadership of Matt, and and it's it's a key that um, Sir Stanley Rouse, who had been a referee, in fact, had refereed Matt when Manchester City won the FA Cup in, I think, 1934. Um, five years on, saw him as very much a leader of men. So he spent the war, a rather cushy war, I suppose you could say, relatively cushy war, leading this all-star team um, well behind the sound of gunfire, I hope. And uh, uh, anyway, so he was he was well-known as a leader, and that was <coughs> how he, he, he got the job. How, um, James Gibson threw a tip-off from an old, from an army friend, uh, brought him to his his um, business, Cornbrook Cold Storage in Hadfield Street, only about a mile from Old Trafford. Um, and there it was that Matt, wearing uniform, uh, had his interview with Manchester United. It had been at the suggestion of Louis Rocca, who'd written a sort of top secret letter to Aldershot, 
how it, it probably went through the sensors actually now that you think about it um and uh, offering him a, a top secret job at manchester united he went for the interview signed on in james gibson's office while wearing still wearing his uniform and at that meeting with james gibson and walter crickmer and louis rocker there was a complete meeting of minds so busby already wanted and he'd been influenced i think by george Kay, the manager of liverpool who was a, another believer in youth policy so he had this philosophy so he went to gibson and company to say we have to build from youth and gibson went into the meeting saying if you don't believe in building from youth this isn't going to work so they both went in there uh, virtually sort of singing from the same hymn sheet so it was a very harmonious uh, interview and he was offered the job he was offered three years uh initially he said really uh, i'm going to need five and james gibson said as long as you know we're going to be doing it by youth policy rather than expensive fees yes you can have five no problem at all he signed on and uh the contract was dated one month after demobilization the war was still going on and matt went uh, he had one final tour of duty with his all-star team it was to italy and greece and it was in italy near bari on the adriatic <coughs> coast that he met this man, Jimmy Murphy. Uh, Jimmy Murphy was coaching um, soldiers in the arts of football, the principles of football, the passion of football. And Matt Busby, just standing there with his metaphorical jaw hanging at the eloquence of this man and the way he talked with such passion about football. Basically, after a few more conversations with Jimmy Murphy, Matt knew he'd got his assistant. And he asked Jimmy, would would you uh, would you come with me and on this journey? And uh, Jimmy Murphy, whose career was winding down, he'd been a midfield player, a bit of a, a bit of a tough midfield player by all accounts. With West Brom, his career was winding down. He'd gone to Swindon. He thought, "Yeah, I'm going to need a job after the war. What better than to be Matt's assistant?" So he agreed, and uh, he hadn't been demobilized. And Matt was demobilized after that tour and became available to United. And Jimmy had to continue uh, in the um, uh, in the army for another, I think, six months after that. But then the team uh, of Murphy, Busby and Murphy that was to carry Manchester United to such glory, in fact, was to form the origins of the modern Manchester United um it was was underway but it was very much and it's very key as you to point out as you did that the it was a marriage made in heaven in in the sense that the philip the philosophy of the club and matt uh was youth 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 and jimmy murphy was uh was the perfect man to coach these youths in not so much in the techniques of football although he was very good at that but in the standards expected of a manchester united player absolutely um i did not set out to build a team busby said in his book my story the task ahead was much bigger than that what i really embarked upon was the building of a system which would produce not one team but four or five teams each occupying a rung on the ladder the summit of which was my first 11. i wanted to build teams of world-class footballers and to do the job efficiently i had to get all of them young as soon as they were available in fact now, the expectations for the first full season in charge um, were a bit mixed, really, because United were heavily in debt. Busby was only just in charge. They still needed Gibson's money to redevelop Old Trafford, but they were playing at, Old, at Main Road due to the bombing at Old Trafford. Um, so it was uh, very much a case of everyone finding the wrong place in the game again, and, and that's mm. good for United um, as, a, as a club who had really, in football terms, only just been promoted back to the first division. Um, yeah. even though people associate Busby's time as a blank page and really it kind of was um, they were still a club who were in this kind of financial strife very much so yes I mean they go apart from anything else they didn't have a, a stadium because of the war damage um, which I mean to put it in a little bit of context the the the, the worst damage to the to the stands and to the pitch 
were caused on a night in which nearly 1,000 people lost their lives in Manchester and Salford. Um, and and uh, it, the, the target for the bombings by the Luftwaffe was probably um, the nearby Salford docks and, 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 and the, the industrial estate at Trafford Park. But uh, Old Trafford had been used as a parking place for barrage balloons, uh, which I think were in the sort of defensive um, part of the war effort. And uh, so it, it is possible that that they targeted Old Trafford deliberately, although it's more likely that there were stray bombs meant for the surrounding industrial powerhouses. Yeah. Um, there was a little bit of disgruntlement at the time about the exorbitant um, fees that City were charging for, yes. for the rent of Main Road, but we'll get to that in good time. Um, yeah. Busby's time as manager in competitive matches actually began in the previous season's FA Cup. Um, United were eliminated in, in the fifth round, I think. Um, and then we get to 46-47 season where the first five league games in charge roll won. Um, one of those was a 5-0 win over Liverpool, which we'll come to again in a moment. The following weekend, uh, <laughs> of course, um, the following weekend, they attracted 65,112 fans to Main Road to face Middlesbrough. So there was very much the idea that Busby's idea of um, building an attractive side for the working men of Manchester to come and watch at a weekend was already paying dividends there. Um, so that was what happened in early on in the season. Those five league wins were a bit of a, a false start because um, the league form tailed off before Christmas. They were knocked out of the FA Cup in the fourth round by Forest um, just after Christmas. But they went on to have a, a strong run of form in the league that coincided with Jack Crompton's return to the team. He'd, he'd missed yeah. 14 games with an injury, which we'll get to when we're introducing the squad in a moment. Yeah. Um, they beat Everton on Cramp Crompton's return and then they won six from eight. Um, in the last weeks of the season, they lost to Liverpool in May, which was effectively the crucial result that saw yeah. the title end up on Merseyside. But United did finish with two big home wins to finish second with 95 goals, 54 goals conceded though, yeah. which gave an idea of the cavalier nature of the sport then as we'll get onto with the tactics in a moment. Um, yeah. With the 56 points and then uh, two points for a win, one for a draw. Top scorer yeah. was Jack Rowley with 28 goals, 26 in the league. Rowley also got two hat-tricks in the season. Stan Pearson scoring one in the win over Liverpool. Mm. And United's average attendance at Main Road in the end, uh, 43,327. I mean, in, in terms of extraordinary expectations yeah. for the first season, you could say that um, Busby surpassed anything that had been laid down in front of him. Yeah, very much so, because Manchester United, until his arrival were almost the sort of yo-yo club, you know. Um, they they were they were probably not the biggest club in Manchester. Um, they, um, you know, had spent a lot of time um, in 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 the second division. In fact, they came back after the sacking of the manager Scott Duncan and his replacement by by Louis Rocca and 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 Walter Crickner, who who looked after the team and uh, supervised the promotion campaign. So, yes, the arrival of Busby coincided with Manchester United becoming a big club uh, immediately. The, you, you've given the statistics for the goal, 95 goals scored and, and, and second place in the league. So, you know, this is incredible. I'm not saying that Busby deserves all the credit for that because those wonderful players who came up during the 1930s uh, in the youth policy that culminated in the in the formation of Mojax in 1938 I think quite quite soon before the war but of course that sustained the club through the war so that all the players that had, had come uh, in fact Jack Rowley the leading goal scorer was bought I think during the war as a 17 year old from Bournemouth but um but basically, I think eight of the players who were to achieve glory, spoiler alert, um, were already engaged to the club before before the, the Second World War. And it's an amazing, uh, what I find amazing and, and of great credit to Busby, is that the war which could have done such harm to the players, I mean, after all, fighting a war is, is an incredibly traumatic experience. And... 
In fact, one of the players, it, it virtually ruined his career. Uh, and I'm sure, uh, you know, keen historians of Manchester United will know that it was Johnny stroke Jimmy Hanlon who uh, really had, had suffered malnutrition uh, as a prisoner of war and, and, and was never quite the same after. But by and large, most of them were. I mean, wonderful players, Morris Mitten, who we'll obviously discuss in more detail later. Um, you know, John Aston Sr., um, you know, but you could go on and on and on. They were sustained during the war by the Manchester United system, although their playing career, or their, sorry, their lives took them to other places. Let's begin going through the squad then. Um, we'll start with the goalkeepers, um, Jack Crompton. Yeah, yeah well, Jack, Jack Crompton, um, you're quite right that his return to the team in the 40-46 season was was coincide, coincident with the, uh, with the with the good form. He was a, a brilliant shot stopper, though I never, even I'm not old enough to have actually seen him, but he was a... <laughs> Uh, probably best to go with Matt Busby's um, opinion of Jack, which was very, very high. But he always wanted to replace him. And he, he had a very, very clear idea of where the replacement would be found, about two or three miles away, because Busby believed that the best goalkeeper in Manchester was City's Frank Swift. Great character, extrovert goalkeeper, huge personality, huge figure of a man, hands the size of a toddler, uh, a well-fed toddler. I mean, a big, big in every way uh, was Frank Swift. And, and Matt certainly um, believed that he was the future of Manchester United goalkeeping. I think he probably saw in him what the United scout many decades later uh, saw in um, in Peter Schmeichel, uh, this personality. Uh, Jack was a was more of a shot stopper, and uh, although he was to play a heroic part, uh, again, I don't want to spoil any stories in in, um, in a great occasion. But he 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 had a very good United career, which which was to last way way beyond his playing career. But as I say, Matt must be always hankered after replacing him. With someone a wee bit better. Yeah, he could have done without replacing him in this season, to be fair. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Jack, five foot nine, um, so not a natural. I mean, he looks taller on the picture there. Yeah. <laughs> so six foot yeah. seven in the picture. <laughs> five foot nine. Um, he, he would have served in the RAF during the war, and he actually wanted to, but he, he turned up to the interview um, with his leg in plaster, having broken it playing football. Um, so he was. Um, sort of spared uh, fighting on the front line. Um, he, was a, he was a good shot stopper, as, um, as Paddy says, very athletic and was involved in the team's training from an early age because of his attitude to uh, athleticism and fitness. Um, yes. And that would, as, as Paddy said, uh, on more than one occasion, it would feature in United's future. Um, when, when Jack was injured in the autumn, his first replacement was Cliff Collinson. Um, mm. He made seven appearances. Uh, played them all consecutively, came into the team, uh, but he was deemed not ready. Um, he was a local lad again, but United needed a better goalkeeper to back up Jack. So um, they, they brought one in, um, and that was Bill Fielding uh, from Bolton. Um, he was involved in a transfer that took Billy Rigglesworth, um, or William Rigglesworth, if you want to give him his, his full name, um, to, to Bolton Wanderers. Um, and we'll talk about Billy in a moment. Uh, Bill Fielding also played seven games. Six of those were in the league, but he let in a lot of goals. He let in six at Arsenal, four at Derby. He only um, kept one clean sheet and retired the following year. So um, it was clear that United, um, you know, the goalkeeping situation wasn't great, but Jack was most undoubtedly the, um, yes. the most reliable of those. Um, so if we get on to the fullbacks, the first two that jump out um, are two dominant names, Paddy. We'll start with uh, possibly the most dominant, a player who doesn't get anywhere near the amount of recognition he deserves, um, Johnny Carey. Yeah, um, a, a great player. If we, um, <clears throat> if we, if you signed for £250 by, <clears throat> uh, on the recommendation of United's um, extremely successful 
Dublin scout Billy Bean, uh, Louis Rocca went, or Luigi Rocca as he was uh, christened, um, went over to Dublin and signed him uh, for 250 quid, which is incredible. But I'd like to talk about the two fullbacks together because the other one was John Aston Senior. And what links them is that they started off as creative players, as inside forwards, in Aston's case, as a, as a goal scorer as well. Whereas Carey was, was, was more of a, a constructor, although he could uh, chip in with a goal or two. And, and in fact, it, you know, was, was to be quite capable of moving from fullback into midfield um, in the ensuing years at first team level. <clears throat> so, uh, I mean, that's both of the fullbacks, both of Matt's fullbacks. And, and, and here we can bring it up to date because now people look at managers like Pep Guardiola and think that they've almost, you know, reinvented football um, by having, you know, creative fullbacks and so on. And if you look at other clubs, you know, in the modern game, you know, that often the fullbacks are the, are arguably the main creative influences. But Busby was doing this in 1945, um, you know, having players who could play at fullback, which is very unusual in those days. Um, so, uh, but Carey was, was really in a class of his own because he was an organizer as well. He was the captain for that reason. He was an extremely intelligent man. He was the only man that Busby had met before the war, before his arrival at Old Trafford, because Carey had been part of the the um, the army, you know, touring teams, um, and he was <clears throat> very very mature, incredibly um, gentlemanly, um, you know, a, 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 a wonderful technician, uh, a great leader, and and really one of the ones that Busby couldn't have done without. Um, and Aston, uh, Aston as well, the other the other first team fullback, uh, as I say, converted forward, um, tough tackler, quick from all accounts. Um, and uh, well, until the arrival rate later of, of Roger Byrne, you know, you thought United would never get a better, a better left back. Uh, Carey made 33 appearances, 31 in the league, and yeah. um, Aston made 23 appearances, 21 in the league. Um, the other fullbacks from that season, we'll talk, uh, as Paddy said earlier, we'll talk about the tactics as well in a moment. Yeah. The other fullbacks, um, Joe Walton, he came through the youth appearance, uh, youth system, yeah. primarily played on the left-hand side. Yeah. Um, and then you've got this entertaining... Well, Walton, Walton was going to be a great... You know, Walton you know, was, was held up as a prime example of the youth policy. You know, he was going to be a great player, you know, and uh, uh, and he did actually have a very good career later, I think, at Preston, it may, maybe. Um, so, yeah. Um, and you were going to mention... Um, Harry Worrell, who uh, Worrell, yes. spotted by Louis Rocker before the war. Um, a great story about Worrell. The, he was one of these promising forwards, inside forwards, um, yeah. that could be converted. But at the time, spotted as an inside forward for Winsford. Uh, Rocker went to see him before one game. It was a midweek game. Uh, Worrell worked as a labourer in the day. Uh, yeah. But in the midweek games before floodlights uh, came along, games were played early. So yeah. when Worrell came home for his lunch, uh, Rocker had so thought he was stealing a march, so he turned up at the family home thinking, yeah. oh, do you know what, I'll sign the player um, and before he even gets to the game. Um, yeah. But the parents put a big steak meal in front of um, Ari Worrell and he um, he decided to take it, eat it all, and Rocker encouraged him to do it, knowing that yeah. a full lad isn't going to be able to play a great game of football. Um, later on in the day, obviously, he was had an abysmal start to the game, um, apparently there was 12 scouts, 10 left, apart from Rocker and uh, the Liverpool scout, but it made it competition a lot easier to sign in. And that was the kind <laughs> of tricks that Louis Rocker would get up to, to to make sure that he got his man for, for United. Um, but yeah, an inside forward at the start of the war when he signed for United, now in his late 20s, um, he just made one appearance this season. Um, as a fullback um, coming in to probably replace Johnny Carey. On, but you on that know, you're, you, you're not um, 
accidentally you're making a really good point here, Wayne. When you you list, you talked about the two goalkeepers who were maybes and didn't quite make it. You're talking about left uh, the left backs. You know, you're going to the who, who didn't make it at United, Walton, um, Warrell, and these are all from within an hour's bus ride of Manchester. You know, yeah, and. So the, the production of footballers in those days, the, the choice available, if you had the common sense to run a youth policy, was phenomenal compared with, compared with today when, well, children entertain themselves electronically rather than physically, don't they? Yeah, well, these were the heroes of the Manchester boys, really, these yeah. uh, Manchester United players. Uh, we'll move on to the half-back line. And as I keep stressing, we'll talk about what all these positions mean in a moment. Um, the first one to mention, um, yeah. Alan B. Chilton. <laughs> Just the thought of him, Wayne, uh, terrifies me. You know, he was a uh, gruff. Uh, I think, was he from Hull, somewhere like that, up, uh, up, up on the sort of East Coast? Um, he was, uh, yeah, he was a... A tough guy, um, big, strong, uh, but I think he had a bit of a heart of gold. You know, he was very gruff with the young players, but I think he helped them as well. Uh, he was held to be um, accident prone in in the sense not that he fell off ladders or anything, but <laughs> that he, if he made a mistake in a game, it would probably lead to a goal. So John Stones of his time, maybe that's not a bit unfair, but there you go. Um, it was, uh, but, he, but very hard, uh, tough tackling, typical centre half of, of of the day, um, but a great, great uh, servant to Manchester United as his appearance record. How many is that? Three hundred and ninety-one. Yeah. Um, you know that that speaks for itself that Busby picked him all those you know week in week out tells its own story. Yeah, he's a six foot one, so he played in the middle of the half back line. Yeah, um, that's the equivalent of six foot four now. <laughs> um, I mean, because people were smaller. I mean, yeah. you just you mentioned earlier, uh, Jack, a five foot nine goalkeeper. That wouldn't be that just would not be possible today, except I suppose in women's football. Yeah, um, or she given. He may have even been smaller than uh, five nine. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, Chilton. He was one of many players to make guest appearances for other clubs during the war, and he served in the Durham Light Infantry. He also served in the Normandy Landings as well. Um, but yeah, he was uh, one of the reliable names for for Busby. And then another one was uh, this fellow. Uh, yeah, yeah, this. Uh, Coburn, I would have loved to have seen Henry Coburn. He was he was a really really good player, and as is evidenced, I think, by his uh, promotion to the England team almost within um, months, I think, of the resumption of football. Uh, he he was a midfield player, and to say that they, he was small, I think five foot six. Um, but he had, I suppose you could say that Nobby Styles, who came later, may have been modeled almost on Henry Coburn, except Henry Coburn was maybe an even better player. I mean, Nobby Styles was a good footballer. He has a reputation, he had a reputation for being fierce tackler, but of course he was much, much more than that. Coburn might have been an even better footballer. He really could do everything, but he was known, um, uh, among the players, he was always the journalists. Always, the, the, the word terrier would always come into the description. He was terrier like in midfield, you know. And the players called him the ratter because, you know, maybe maybe because he was sort of cat like, but or maybe because he was like these little Jack Russells that that that, that killed. No, he was called Mouser, sorry, but he would chase rodents and. Um, so that was the sort of snappy, but he was quick and he was clever and he was skillful. I would have loved to have seen Henry Coburn play. Um, and, uh, you, you know, he was, he was one that 
to his place in the team was was never in doubt if he was available, which he usually was. Yeah, um, he played 32 appearances, um, all in the league this season. One of the players to come through the Goslings um, system. Started off as a forward player and trained into a wing off by the time of his debut. And as Paddy said, in, in 1946, he made the, th- the first of um, 13 England appearances. Amazing, because you, you know caps were harder to come by. And Jack Warner, um, famous name, later to be given to the actor who played Dixon of Doc Green and to a controversial uh, Caribbean football administrator. But this was the Jack Warner uh, of the time. Yeah, steady halfback, maybe not top, top class. Maybe, did he lose? I think he may have lost his place to Henry Coburn. Yeah. He played 34 appearances, 36 in all competitions. He was one of these players who was signed just before the war. And, uh, um, you know, he was only five foot seven. Uh, He was a nippy midfielder, but there were a couple of players, as we'll come on to, that were signed before the war that didn't quite fit in to Matt Buckley's plans. Um, Another one of those, um, Billy McGlenn, halfback. Mm -hmm. He played 35 appearances, um, scored one goal, 35, 33 of those appearances in the league. Uh, at the start of the season, he played many of his games at left-back initially when Aston wasn't in the team, yeah. but he moved to half-back um, later on. Um, one man who was in um, Busby's plans, Bert Wally. Um, yeah. 38 appearances, but only three of those came after the war. Um, he was signed before the war. Um, during the season, he was learning to be a coach anyway. But during, I think it was June, a June um, training session at the end of the season. Yes. He because, was, of uh, his, because of his age, you know, it was, he was always destined to be remembered um, for his subsequent contribution as one of Busby's most trusted assistants. Uh, up there, maybe, maybe not as in fundamental as Jimmy Murphy, but not far off, you know, in terms of Busby listening to his advice and his wise counsel. Um, he was he was there every day, you know, he was to be there later every day. But because of his age, not remembered as a player to the same extent. Well, um, you think we've told some stories so far. Well, wait until you get to the, the forward line there, the a forward line known as the famous five. And we'll yeah. start with um, a gentleman called Stan Pearson, who was signed before the war served during the war and went back to the United in his late 20s. Um, in this season, he scored 19 goals in 42 league games. Yeah. His hat-trick against Liverpool early in the season made him the, the last person until Dimitar Berbatov to do that in 2010. Yeah. Um, ironically, you might liken him to a Berbatov, an inside forward who was known for his skill and most of all his timing. Uh, yeah. Paddy, um, what, what is it to say about Stan Pearson? Yeah, well, it, it, you, you've really summed it up. That it, it, I would say um, you couldn't work out whether he was a maker or taker. He scored loads of, uh, of goals, um, and yet he was also, um, you know, part of the, the build-up in, in every attack. Uh, an understated player for all his fantastic ability. Um, and you know 343 appearances look at that um and also look at 148 goals almost a goal every other game for a player um who was who was creative rather than predatory um yeah an amazing player and uh um you know fundamental to all of united's success um yeah another one another one that we'd all have loved to have seen yeah, um, the inside forward line also carried a, a player called Johnny Morris. Uh-huh. He was um, distinctive for being stocky and he was a little bit shorter than um, um, Pearson for sure. Um, yeah. Obviously, that shock of black curls on his hair made him stand out on the field. Um, yeah. Where Pearson different. was back. Yeah, different from Pearson, in, yeah. as you say, in that whereas Pearson was understated, Morris was cheeky, assertive, um, very sort of um, opinionated is the wrong word, but uh, he, he loved to. He was a winner and, and loved to loved to dominate a game, you know, and uh, had the ability, had the skill to do it, um, um, and will no doubt come to uh, 
the fact that he probably spent the the end of his years away from Old Trafford and the reasons why. But the he, he was uh, again, you know, one you would love to see and 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 I say different from Pearson, but but complementary too. And uh, similarly, almost scored a goal every other game. Uh, he was also a great uh, set piece deliverer. Um, he could he could he could do anything. Yeah, Jimmy Delaney, your compatriot. Yes, uh, the only, the only, I think the only Busby signing of of this team that we are forming in our minds. Um, this, he was uh, he played for Celtic. Jimmy Delaney, he'd been rather disparaged and had been given nicknames like Brittle Bones because of his proneness to injury, and that was why. Even though he came relatively cheap for a for a top class winger, it was an outside right um, at four thousand um, pounds. Uh, even though the price was modest for a for a player of his class, it was considered that Busby was still taking a chance, given you know this reputation he had for for getting too many injuries. Well. Um, whether the Old Trafford fitness guys were better than the ones up at Celtic, I don't know. But he went on to to play and score loads of uh, times for, for Man United, even though it was his kind of what should have been his dotage years. Um, and yet he was uh, he turned out to be fundamental to the team for ooh, years, years to come. The, the most notable, I mean, he won two league titles and a, a Scottish Cup at Celtic, but I think the most yeah. famous story was when he broke his arm and yeah. he broke his arm in a game and then one of the opposition players went and trampled all over it. Yeah. Uh, the injury so severe that it cost him, uh, I say cost him, and a lot of people wanted to fight in the war and I'm sure he would have been one of those, but he wasn't able yeah. to because of the injury. Um, but yeah, he was a proper outside um, right and that brings us on to a proper outside left Charlie Mitten, um, who well, yeah, Charlie one, Mitten, controversial characters. He was well in the exactly like Johnny Morris, and, and I'm sure as the series progresses, we'll get on to his story, and we'll definitely get on to the story of Charlie Mitten, the con controversy. But one thing that was significant to me when Matt Busby stepped down the first time as Manchester United manager in. 1969, I think it was. He was asked at this at the press conference, "Can you give us your all-time top 11 from the three great teams of great players that that he built in um, in his time as manager?" And his outside left was Charlie Mitten. His outside right was George Best, but his outside left was Charlie Mitten even though they're, they'd had a parting of the ways. So that tells you really all you need to know. He would, he was very quick, outside left, a bit a bit like a bookend with, um, with Jimmy Delaney in the sense that, um, that, that they were touchline hugging wingers who could, who could cross without breaking stride. Mitten was, was sensational for that. So many, uh, United goals would come from what were known as pinpoint crosses, but he didn't need to stop and turn back. He would hit them on the run, and of course, with his pace, he could always gain a yard. Um, so yeah, Mitten was was a fantastic goal maker who who who, who contributed his his share of goals as well. And for Matt Busby to uh, to pick him in his all-time Manchester United eleven uh, is given the great players that were almost commonplace during his reign. Um, you know, is 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 a great honour. Yeah, um, Charlie in this season, eight goals in twenty league games. Um, he was known for his light yeah. Um He had he gave tremendous balance to the side. He was twenty-five at this time, signed as a pro before the war, but one of those who served in the war. RAF and he actually had offers to play in Italy. Um, obviously, his nephew, um, a lot of people will know, um, yeah. Andy Mitten, uh, current United writer um, and football writer, great football writer as well. Um, yeah. But Charlie, um, 
perhaps was tempted by the idea of moving abroad as well. <laughs> we'll come to in later episodes. You got to rein yourself in at times in, before, unless you give the give the ending away. Yeah. Um, the the number nine in that front line was Jack Rowley, um, the yeah. gunman as he was known. Yeah, he was. Uh, well, he had a shot. Um, he, he had a hell of a shot on him. Centre forward, signed at seventeen from Bournemouth during the war. Um, uh, tremendous, you know, pile driver, cannonball. Probably, you know, you people of a certain age might remember Bobby Charlton's shooting and and might instinctively duck. Um, from what I've read of Jack Rowley, you know, he would, his shooting was that powerful. Um, mobile, uh, centre forward, who did his job, a goal every other game, 424 appearances, 211 goals. That's just fantastic and great value for £3,000 from Bournemouth. Yeah, um, 26 goals in the league, 28 in all competitions. Signed for £3,000. He actually scored four goals in his second game against yeah. Swansea before the war, um, helping United back into the first division. One of those yeah. signs from outside left, but this time converting to a more prominent centre-forward position. That's right. He could, he could, you're right, he could play on the wing. One other thing you, you'd have to say about him, uh, and, and it, I think you've chosen well on your photograph because he, uh, he was a grumpy old sort. You, he, he, he wasn't the most happy-go-lucky, from by all accounts. But uh, who cares? You know, when uh, I don't think any of his teammates minded because uh, he scored scored so many goals. Yeah, um, another player with a story. And we, as we go into the reserve forward line, is a, a lad called Jimmy Hanlon. Yeah, this is the one that uh, we touched on earlier. Um, I think. He, you know, the war was not kind to him. Uh, and yet, wow, yeah, nearly one in three um, is goal-scoring record, which which is really good. Um, but, uh, yeah, he would have, I, I think, you know, but, but for the war, um, would have had an even better uh, Manchester United career. And, and, you know, who knows, might have challenged these great names that, that, that we've mentioned in the the last few minutes. Yeah, uh, he was a local lad, promoted to the first team after 10 goals in seven Amazing. Reserves. Amazing how many players were produced by that system. Yeah, Absolutely uh, incredible. He was um, described as a notable, notable discovery of the 38-39 season. He was described as quick off the mark with a fine shot. Um, and really, there was some a, a lot of talent in this front line. Ronnie Burke, Ooh, nine goals. Ronnie Burke, yeah. Nine goals in 13 games this season for Ronnie, who'd actually been convinced to sign for United over Rotherham during the war, but he couldn't get into the side despite that incredible performance. And again, you look at his complete record up there, you can see how, how prolific he was. Yeah. Um, the, the forward line was that good that he just couldn't get a game. Um, and the same goes for this lad, Ted Buckle. Um, three goals in five league games, four in seven. He was spotted during... Um, sort of pl spotted playing during the war, scored on his debut against Charlton in January '47, mm -hmm. but um, he normally played in the wide positions and he couldn't because yeah, he was a, a long, lanky guy, I think, and and as you say, played in the wide positions. But oh, what a what a task he had to try and I think he had a decent career elsewhere. Did he go yeah. to Everton? Maybe I don't know, but he he um, he had a decent career in the end, and 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 as I say, anywhere else would have been a first-team regular. Yeah, and the same could be said for William Reelsworth, um, who yeah. scored two goals in consecutive games in the autumn and signed from Wolves as basically a star player he would have been before the war. Um, but, but by the end of it and the start of Busby's redeveloping, he just didn't yeah. have a place in the side. He was five foot four, and uh, he, he was effectively used as a make-weight for Bill Fielding's transfer in, in January when United needed a goalkeeper. Um, so that was the squad... And these are the tactics for that team. And if that looks unfamiliar, don't worry, we'll run it through you. Um, it's a two, three, five formation, uh, which people might associate with Tommy Doherty, but um, he was Matt Busby's first formation. Um, yeah. The team shape, two, three, five, adopted by Herbert Chapman at Uddersfield, but more popular, popularly at Arsenal, uh, become widespread through football, really, because, um, because of 
the revolutionary way um, in which the team was set up. Um, despite how attacking it looked, it was actually the first attempt at an organised defence, wasn't it, Paddy? Because it coincided yes. with the, yeah. the recent change in the offside law, which, I mean, recent for this podcast, which came in 1925. Yeah. Um, as we generally know it today, a player is considered offside unless um, two opposing yeah. players were in front of him, including the goalkeeper. But back then it was. Um, it was three players, wasn't it? So it was yeah. a, big, a big sort of change. So um, Chapman had revolutionised this change. Uh, someone who obviously you've spent a lot of time studying. Yeah. Um, so it really, this this formation was the go-to in British football. Yeah. It, 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 and it, in fact, the only thing is though, Wayne, that Chilton didn't play there. He didn't play between Coburn and McGlenn. A two-three-five is, and I know if you look at Cup final programs, it's always 235, 235. 235 is what I would call the myth of English football. I've never seen a team play 235 because 235 stopped in the 20s. It became 325. Yeah, Chilton yeah. would have actually played between Carey and Aston, not between yeah. Coburn and McGlenn. And uh, uh, as, I, as I say, it's mythical, but that's how the teams. You, you're quite right to, to line it up that way because that's the way that's the way the managers would write it when on the back of a fag packet when they were when they were doing the team. And uh, but but Chilton would often be the last man. I, 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 again, at the risk of jumping the gun, when we discussed the 1948 Cup final. Um, We'll discuss a, a controversial moment when Chilton found himself the last man in defence. So he he would, uh, yeah, he would probably be more likely to be between Carey and Aston. But as you say, two, three, five. That was how it lined up. In fact, it, it was said in um, in rhythm. People would say Crompton, Carey, and Aston, Coburn, Chilton, and McGlenn, Delaney, Pearson, Rowley, Morris, and Mitten. That's how that's how it was said, and. Uh, yeah, that's uh, as you said. That was that was the way the managers set out the teams. Yeah. Um, uh, would McGlenn have played left half? Would Aston maybe have swapped with McGlenn at some stage? I don't know. Uh, but anyway, that's the that's the team. And I mean, the really exciting part of it is is that forward line. Uh, you know, perfectly perfectly balanced. You know, you you pointed out that Mitten Mitten's. Uh, you know, left-sidedness gave it that gave it that balance because left-sided players were less less common in those days. Sometimes you see teams nowadays five left-footers, less less common in those days for some reason. Yeah, answers um, answer. Use both sides of the paper, folks. Tell us why. <laughs> um, yeah, let's. I'll have a quick run through the, the sort of positional things with the United. I mean, the goalkeeper Crompton. His role was to stay on the line, or at least that's what goalkeepers were expected yeah. to do in those days. Yes. Expected yeah. to be brave shot stoppers and not much else. Um, the full backs were probably the, the outfield with least change to today's um, position, really. Yes. Just, you put a full back there, you expect them to do the same as they do today. They were expected to yeah. work the offside trap effectively, yeah. but provide resolute defensive work support to the wingers in front of them um, or, or outside forwards as they were known. As you can already tell from how we've discussed these players, Busby and Murphy were keen on making sure that the defenders still had quality on the ball. So we're not talking about cloggers. We're talking about expert players trained from one position into another to, in order to be able to play with the ball. Um, the very, good point, line, very good point, Wayne. If I may interrupt briefly, Chilton was the only player out of those 11, um, apart from, sorry, the 10 outfield players, Chilton was the only one who wasn't primarily a footballer. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Uh, it's amazing. You might see that occasionally now, but it's amazing to think that Busby was doing that in 1946. Yeah, um, the half-back line of, of Coburn, Chilton and McGlenn, um, as Paddy's already pointed out, there's wing-halves and a centre-half. It's a bit more complicated, but it is easy to follow because the centre-half is a giveaway because that yeah. player did drop back into the two to make it a three. Yeah. And his yeah. responsibility, as well as marking that space was to track the other team centre forward, the number nine. Yep. And we'll talk about shirt numbers, but shirt numbers at this time were really important because they did actually mark the position you played and opponents would get quite 
annoyed if you messed about with that. We'll talk about that in future episodes. Um, but the, the wing half, so the right half and the left half, were arguably the two most important players in a great team because they needed to be great if your team was going to be great. And I guess you would call them midfielders, defensive midfielders, really, but they had a lot of work yeah. to do because the forward line was not expected to do anything other than attack. And the wingers, mm-hmm. as Paddy's already said, the outside right and the outside left, were line huggers. They're expected to supply the ball into the box ball. So and they'd be they'd be seven and eleven because um, yeah. there were no squad numbers. Of course, squad numbers only came in in oh, when about twenty five years ago. Yeah. Um, you 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 actually told the crowd which position a player was. It Crompton K, Crompton one K. Well, Crompton would have nothing on his back, but. Uh, De facto number one, Carey would be two, Aston would be three, Coburn uh, four, Chilton five, McLean six, Delaney seven, Pearson eight. Yeah, it would just uh, that would be one to eleven. And as you rightly say, if anybody, if there's any jiggery pokery with the numbers, it would be considered cheating. <laughs> uh, I, I remember uh, to, to digress briefly, it Shankly. When, when the game went to our back four, Bill Shankly at Liverpool played Tommy Smith, a converted wing half, as his second centre half alongside Ron Yeats. And he wore number four, but didn't play in midfield as all number fours, including Matt Murphy, had done in the previous uh, years. And there was a journalist, a great journalist for The Guardian in Manchester called Eric Todd. And he refused to accept that Tommy Smith was playing second centre half and called and, and used to call him the wing half because he was wearing number four. He said, oh, if he's going to wear number four, he's, he's a wing half and that's all there is to it. So there was this feeling that it was almost cheating to mess around with the numbers. I mean, yeah. just as well, poor old Toddy isn't around now to see players lining up in nine, number 99. Yeah, they. I mean, they, it was Hungary, really, when Hungary sort of came to England and humbled England, that they sort of really sort of... Oh, they messed about with the numbers, did they? Yeah. Oh, that's, I never knew that. Yeah. They um, took umbrage with that with some of the English uh, folk. Um, but, yeah, I mean, centre-forward, I mean, was ex- alongside the fullback probably the least complicated. The goals were expected, but these were days before goal hanging was acceptable, so the players were also expected to be capable of serving as decoys for the inside forwards so that they might drop deep to occupy the yeah. opponent's centre half to allow that space in behind. And we've already discussed the inside forwards were the creators, the schemers, the Bruno Fernandes, Mesut Ozil, um, Ronaldinho. Okay, okay, Gundogan. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All these kind of players expected to score, but expected to lay on the chances. And most teams would have two of those players because of this shape. I mean, you'd be really spoiled with two playmakers in a team, but that's what it was then. Now, United's application of the system was mostly traditional at this point, but as Busby had always stressed, that would change depending on the personal qualities an individual player would bring to the side. So you might have taller or quicker or more combative players, or you yeah. might have an opponent more inclined to let a smaller player play. Um, and these were the tactical considerations Busby employed, but it was very much an ethos at this moment, just outscore the opposition. Um a couple of extra bits for this season. This was the cover for the United review for this campaign, uh, the match really? programme. Uh, while we're viewing uh, that, um, we'll run you through the team colours for the season, which were red and white, as you can see on that. That's quite a nice graphic for the shirt. Um, but yeah. the, away, the away shirt wasn't a suit. Uh, it was a blue shirt and um, white socks. Uh, oh, sorry, white shorts and, and black socks as well. Um, it was also the first season this season where it was compulsory for teams to have numbers stitched on the shirts as well. So big revolutions happening in football. Yeah. Um, the key results for this season, Paddy, uh, Liverpool 5-0, obviously a massive indication that even though it was early, things were going well and possibly even strengthened by the fact. I know that, yeah, United ended up finishing second, but the fact that they won 5-0 over the champions was a massive indication that Busby had hit something right from the word go. Mm. Yes, absolutely, and 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 how uh, piquant it would have been for Busby, who could have been the assistant manager or even the manager of that Liverpool team if he'd stayed at Liverpool and resisted the blandishments of Louis Rocca to come to uh, and the offer of James Gibson to come to Manchester United. 
Very, very, very strange game. To, to round off the episode, elsewhere in England, Liverpool did win the league. Um, Charlton won the FA Cup. Manchester City won the second division. In the second division that season, Newcastle scored 13 goals in a game. Um, also in 1946, uh, Sports Prague, Czechoslovakia, toured Great Britain, drawing 2-2 with Arsenal and losing 3-1 at Birmingham. These games were early precursors to European competition. Um, a city celebrated winning a trophy across town. It was Matt Busby's ambition that his exciting forward line would deliver silverware soon for Manchester United. Um, this was a bumper first episode to cover all of the origins. They're not going to be this long in the future, but if you're watching this video, please give it a like and subscribe and join in the conversation, as I said, in the comment section. If you're listening to the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and we'll give us a review as well on the platform that you're listening on. And we'll see you on the next step down memory road. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.